Hi, my name's Georgina Cook, and this is the Vision of Sound podcast. Conversations at the crossroads where music and art meet. I'm a photographer, artist, and passionate music lover whose camera has portrayed everything from punk gigs to Glastonbury, sweaty drum and bass raves, and the dark dance floors of early dubstep. Vision of Sound is my chance to celebrate other creative people making work about or inspired by music. I'm really excited to be chatting to photographers and artists, publishers, designers and filmmakers about their perspectives of the sounds they love. For this episode, we're joined by Catherine Green. Catherine is a photographer and artist working with communities in London. She's also part of Rendezvous Projects, a community interest company that design and initiate social history projects through storytelling, research, exhibitions, events and publications. Today we're talking to Catherine about Rendezvous' latest project, Sweet Harmony, Radio Rave and Wolfen Forest, 1989-1994. Documenting and celebrating pirate radio and rave in the London borough of Wolfen Forest at a crucial time in rave's history, Sweet Harmony includes a beautifully designed booklet and map, an archive of flyers and photos, and oral history recordings. It really is a perfect example of how a relatively small area of the world can come to be so essential to the formation and growth of an international genre or scene. Things we talk about in this episode include the importance of supporting youth culture. I don't think young people get enough credit for the sort of ingenuity and the initiatives they start. The link between culture and geography It had a lot of bombing during the war, so that meant that in the 50s and 60s a lot of council estates were built here. Um, And I think that mix of architecture and diverse community really helped to fuel and create a really creative scene here. And little facts about this very interesting part of London that you might not otherwise know. Gordon Mack's girlfriend at the time, later his wife, lived in Ernest Richards Towers. And I quite like the history of that because that was named after Keith Richards' grandfather who was a socialist pioneer in the borough. For those that don't know anything about Rendezvous Sweet Harmony Project, can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, the full title is Sweet Harmony Radio Rave and Northern Forest 1989 to 94. And essentially it's been a research project over about a year and a half now where myself and a partner, Lucy Harrison, we're both part of Rendezvous Projects, have been researching the history of pirate radio and rave in the London borough of Walden Forest and looking specifically at a five-year period. So we've been collecting oral histories during that time and archive material, so looking for photographs, flyers, ephemera. And from that, we've also created a small publication, which includes a map which maps out um, some of the activity across the borough during that time. It includes QR codes that link to playlists of radio broadcasts during that time. And it also includes a fold-out poster of some of the flyers. So from that initial research, we've created the publication. We've also created a number of web pages that are details of particular elements of the archive. So a feature on sound systems in the borough, a feature on Rave Scene magazine, which was published in the borough. It's kind of essentially an archive, but then a number of offshoots and creative sort of outputs have come from it. I really love the publication. It's got a nice zine feel to it. Was it a conscious decision for it to be quite zine and DIY? Absolutely. We, um, we worked with a local designer called Claudia Schenk and we were all really interested in 
the progression in flyer design really so we started looking at flyers from sort of 1989 1988 89 and that really homemade diy aesthetic was really important and she first created a series of limited edition risograph prints that um, is a, like a two-color printing process where you get this sort of offset print look we created these limited edition flyers to advertise the project and ask people to get in touch and she then took the aesthetic from those initial flyers and applied it to the publication and another influence was that in the borough in the early 90s was a zine published called rave scene magazine it's published in chinkford and we had several copies of that and which is a very lightweight um, two-color printing process so we, it felt really important to be authentic to some of the um, materials and processes from that time. Yeah, I think it's worked as well. So because we have listeners that aren't from London, I just want to say that Waltham Forest is quite a big borough in the northeast of London, would you say? Yeah, it's south of the borough, it sort of borders Hackney, and the north it borders Essex. So it's one of the outer boroughs. It's traditionally a very working class borough. It's as with many places in London in the last 10 years, has been quite gentrified. But I think really its location is really key to um, some of the culture that's developed in the borough. So it being an outer borough, it's a little bit forgotten about. It doesn't quite have the sort of, or didn't have the sort of hip busyness of places like Hackney. But at the same time, it had a really diverse cultural mix. It had a lot of bombing during the war. So that meant that in the 50s and 60s, a lot of council estates were built here. Um, And I think that mix of architecture and diverse community really helped to fuel and create a really creative scene here. So how did Rendezvous Projects come to identify that there was this rich musical heritage in Waltham Forest? Were you always aware of that anyway, or was there something that sparked that idea? Me, personally, I grew up here, so I do remember at the time there being quite a lot of events and activity going on, and I was sort of thinking particularly about record shops and how they've all gone, um, and just how many there was in the borough. I sort of had an idea that there was kind of little bits of activity going on, and having read various sort of articles or books about the history of music, There wasn't a lot mentioned about Waltham Forest and a lot of the projects that Rendezvous does together, uh, we're a community interest company, is about unearthing undocumented history and representing it or reinterpreting it in creative ways. Waltham Forest won the first Borough of Culture, which is a funding pot from the London Mayor's Office and it was a year of cultural events. So I got together this idea and submitted it for funding wasn't successful for funding so then took it to heritage lottery so it was really kind of thinking specifically about coming up with a project idea that was about culture in the borough and about the history and I think just having that knowledge and interest myself it all seemed to fit together. So what was your first step into the project once you identified this idea and got the funding for it what was the next step? So the next step was starting to contact people. I had a few contacts from kind of way back in the past and just started asking around. My husband was a DJ. He was a DJ on a pirate station called Pulse FM that was in Hackney. So he also had a couple of contacts. And I think very quickly, I was very surprised by just the amount of people that had had done creative things here had made music here had come from here and it's kind of such a small community that once I contacted one person they would open the doors to another a number of other people so it kind of spiraled so the first kind of steps were 
contacting people, explaining the project and asking to do oral histories. And once we'd got in contact with people, quite often they would have flyers or, or other material. So we sort of publicised on radio, uh, we sent press releases out, we put flyers out in cafes and it just, it kind of snowballed from there. I used to go buy records in that shop in Lancaster and it was called In The Mix. And Ronnie or someone that worked there, I don't think it was Dave. Dave owned it, Ronnie. What are their, can you say their surnames for the recording? Yeah? Can you say their surnames for the recording? Ronnie Harrell and Dave, I don't know what his last name was. One of them gave me the heads up that it was going to shut soon or whatever. And it closed down. I kind of just got more into the idea of like, you know what, maybe I'll turn it into like real good house music stuff. And I remember going to Trevor, buying about a thousand pounds worth of records off him, which was loads, do you know what I mean? It was loads. Um, and then, opening the shop, promoting it on Pirate Radio, uh, doing really, really well. Um, selling a lot of that stock and then with the money that we earned going back to Trevor and buying like shit loads more and then it snowed I'll never forget this it snowed for two weeks solid snow on the ground and people just weren't coming out people it was just like we were in the shop freezing it was, we were closing early it was like it was snow on the ground it was just like a proper nightmare and I remember that whole period of time just setting us back and just back and uh, kind of living hand to mouth at the same time. The emphasis like you said at the beginning is on pirate radio and record shops and judging by the publication there was a huge amount of those in Wolf and Forest during that period. Have you got any highlights from what you found out about that culture of pirate radio and record shops? It's wider than pirate radio station and record shops. I think the whole ecosystem has been really fascinating to look at. So the record shops being a real focal point for young producers going in, leaving sort of small pressings to be sold, an important place for people to meet up. So, you know, that kind of sense of a real community and then the relationship to venues where younger people could go in and sort of cut their teeth at DJing, could play their records, could get heard by an audience. And then we've also looked at people that were sort of behind the scenes. So like the projection companies or the banner painting companies, the people that you'd hire the DJ equipment from. So really trying to get a sense of the ecology of it. And that's been fascinating that like it was such an economy. And I think the other thing that's been really incredible is just the creativity of people involved and the ingenuity. A lot of people from then that we spoke to had left school at 16 with very few qualifications and possibly not the sort of belief from the education system that you would have hoped somebody would get, but were really determined and absolutely driven by a love of music and to go to such length to broadcast that music to ensure that it got out to an audience, I think is really incredible. The length that people went to to make sure that music was broadcast, that it was the kind of music that they wanted to be broadcast, it wasn't mainstream. The kind of ingenuity in making your own tracks, you know, with hardly any money, making your own tracks, getting them pressed, going to record shops and distributing them, like such a manual process as well, when you think about today's kind of digital processes. So that's that's been really fascinating. 
the amount that people did with very little is fascinating. Music used to come out so fast then, it was like everything was, uh, people were just really interested in coming down and what you had no. Me and Rob, you know, he used to kind of like, I remember once like, we, um, that record, La Da Dee Da Da, La Da Dee, that had just come out on, on one weekend. And um, they, they used to drive around in vans. So they'd pull up in vans with all the music and they'd, they'd bring you in selection of the new stuff. You'd play it and then you'd go, well, I don't know, 10, I don't know, 5, I don't know, 6. And I remember that record coming out and I said to the guy, give me every single one of them that you've got. Right? So I took about like, 80 copies None of the shops after us had, had the record. Then a couple of DJs came in. I think I had a show the next day, and a couple of DJs came in um, from Dance FM, and uh, they all had copies of this record. And they went on the radio and they played it. And they said available down at Dance Factory. I remember that weekend we sold all 80 of them, more than another hundred, and like, we ended up selling like 250 copies of that record, like in two weeks or something. Where, what's the address of the shop? Do you remember it? I can't remember it. It's Langston High Road. She's just like you and me, but she's homeless. She's homeless. As she stands there singing for money. accounts in the publication from a record shop owner talking about Crystal Waters, Gypsy Woman, I think, saying he bought up all the records knowing it was going to be a hit and then that meant that he was the only shop in the area to have those records in so everyone went there to buy them. I think you highlight that quite a lot in the project that, you know, the entrepreneurialism of a lot of the people in the ecology or economy of rave and I've seen that in other music scenes as well. I think also it's been important for us to try and let people tell their own story. So that's why in the publication, the majority of it is quotes from people because often history is told from a particular perspective and it felt important to let people tell their own history. 
I think that a lot of the history from this area is quite working class history and is often overlooked and unappreciated and actually is so massively creative, entrepreneurial, but often doesn't have the sort of power or resources to tell that story firsthand and so can be overlooked. Do you think there's a link between being on the outside or the edge of London and creativity? I do. I can only really speak to that, to my own experience. And I think quite often the suburbs is, doesn't seem to be a lot going on on the surface and you therefore have to make your own entertainment and your own networks and you sort of work harder at that. Whereas if you're in a more central city location, perhaps you've got more culture served to you rather than having to make your own culture. I think particularly around here where you get dense populations and you have estates where there's a lot of people living in close proximity there's a lot of dialogue and kind of swapping of ideas and I think that helps to generate cultural output so I think there's definitely a link between architecture location and creativity I don't feel that qualified about saying anything deeper I suppose about that No, that's okay. Your own perspective is just as important, especially as someone that grew up in the borough. Do you feel like there's still a lot of creativity in the area? Yeah, I do. I think that's one of the reasons we won the London Borough Culture. So traditionally, there hasn't been a lot of support from the council in terms of culture and funding. That's changed quite a bit in the last couple of years because I think they've really realised the importance that culture gives to a sense of place and a sense of belonging and, and placemaking. Yeah, so I think for a number of years, because there hasn't been a great deal of support, people have had to do a lot of things for themselves and have had to make things happen. So we've got a programme here called the E17 Art Trail, which is an event every two years where thousands of people get involved and they open their homes and they could be professional artists or amateurs or schools and it's a very democratic kind of open event that encourages anyone and everyone to get involved. There's loads of sort of homegrown projects like that that are driven by very passionate people so yeah definitely and I think also because it's been a fairly cheap place to live we've had a lot more creatives move in in the last 10 to 15 years. Did you used to go raving in Waltham Forest then yourself? Yeah mainly for me the free parties in like the M11 Link Road. I never had enough money to go raving like my friends from the richer end of the borough Chinkford all went raving but like it'd be £10 for a ticket quite often and I just didn't have the money so for me personally it was quite into the free party scene <laughs> freeloader and because we, we used to have lots of sound systems that came do you know the middle of the link road vaguely so there was massive protests and houses that were derelict and in fact one thing that was really amazing was talking to dj warlock and i had this vague recollection of going to a house party in a squat in Leytonstone. the ceiling downstairs had been removed and the dj was like up on an upstairs landing And I just had a really vague recollection of this. And when I was doing the oral history interview with him, he said, yeah, I played this party in Leytonstone and I was on the landing upstairs and the ceiling had been knocked through. And I was like, oh my God, it did happen. I was there, (laughs) you know, it was brilliant. He sort of filled in a little missing bit of my memory. (laughs) Wow. That's really nice because our last podcast episode was with Shauna Gavin, who is a photographer and used to travel around with a lot of the free party communities. Just published a book. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And she talks about how the free parties were a backlash to rave, suddenly being really expensive. Uh, Yeah, it was absolutely the backlash to that. They went from being relatively affordable to, yeah, £10. I mean, £10 back then would have been a lot of money, right? Yeah, massive, massive. 
it was interesting picking the period that we picked as well because from you see it in the flyers like the kind of commercialization you know the design changes the whole aesthetic changes as you see people getting more into the financial side of it and I think that's fascinating as well in terms of culture and race it was quite a black scene and I think it then became taken over by a much more white crowd and that was to do with the sort of commercialization and then that sort of backlash to jungle and you know that feeling kind of in quotes urban meaning black and you know like that kind of sense of control of like a, a more commercialized control of the scene and just seeing that kind of play through those five years that we've been looking at has been interesting we haven't dug very deep into that but you know that could be a whole other project for someone to do really it's almost like a gentrification totally of culture and an exploitation yeah yeah totally I'm glad I asked you about that now because I didn't even think to ask you why you chose those dates 1989 to 1994 it was really because of the start date felt like the tipping point it kind of was that really innocent start when you know it was very uncommercialized and then the sort of splitting of genres then and people feeling like they had to categorize music started to happen from sort of 89 onwards and then we ended with the um, criminal justice bill and how the government was kind of trying to come in and intervene and control the scene it just felt like five years was a manageable period and an interesting period of change why was it important for you to do this project and collect these oral histories and archive of flyers and photographs from this era it felt like an important time to do it so we started planning it in 2018 2019 so, so looking back 30 years it felt like a really good marker of time and there was a real sense of because this was pre-digital and you know how disorganized people's archives are that quite often things are just in cupboards that history might be getting lost it just felt like the right time it felt quite urgent to do it and it seems like seems to be quite a lot in the air about that sort of 30 year anniversary we bizarrely the day we launched our flyers uh, the Saatchi gallery released their press release about Sweet Harmony at the Saatchi gallery which was really odd um same name and same subject It, it just felt like there's sort of something going on at the moment that a lot of people are feeling that sort of nostalgia
I spoke to Lisa and Jamie from Youth Club Archive and they seem to almost concur that there's a 20 or 30 year cycle before moments in history really become valued again. Yeah, and it, it's kind of from both sides, I think, isn't it? From the younger generation that are coming up, but also as you get older and you kind of reflect on your own youth, maybe you've got children of your own and you start, I don't know, sort of looking back and you realise that life's changed and maybe you're not quite as young as you were and you don't go out quite as much. And at the same time, it seems to sort of become in vogue for a younger generation, doesn't it? I think, you know, thinking about looking at the 60s fashion when I was growing up and there was a real kind of looking back 30 years then to so 20, 30 years, it does feel quite cyclical. Uh, so Kiss FM was one of the stations... For listeners not familiar with Kiss FM, it was one of the first stations playing contemporary black music and, you know, things like rave and soul that made the transition from pirate to commercial radio. And it's really important to the London and UK's wider musical culture and history. Yeah, that was only broadcast quite briefly from Walthamstow. And it felt it felt important to include it because it felt like showing just how significant the borough was and the architecture in the borough was. And that came about because Gordon Mack's girlfriend at the time, later his wife, lived in Ernest Richards Towers. And I quite like the history of that because that was named after Keith Richards' grandfather, who was a socialist pioneer in the borough. And so was his grandma, but she didn't get a tower block named after her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he, Gordon Mack, um, needed a studio and used his girlfriend's flat. And he told us quite an amusing story about the authorities turning up and, you know, him kind of panicking and thinking they were rumbled and raided. But actually, they were more concerned that something was going on with his wife and she possibly might have been being pimped out because men kept turning up on a sort of hourly basis or every couple of hours with bags and 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 so social services actually were quite worried about what was going on rather than uh, the DTI. That's an insane story literally one for the history books. (laughs) First of all we met Stephen Hebditch who published a book about pirate radio in London and he didn't think that there was much activity in in uh, Walden Forest at all and it's kind of really crestfallen. Um, there's a hill between here and the rest of London, basically, which could potentially block a signal. But once we spoke to a few people, and I've still got more people to speak to, actually it moved from, lots of activity moved from Hackney, which is in the south of the borough here, because Hackney kind of got really overpopulated and there was loads of radio stations all in one tower block. So people had to find different places so by about 1989 there was quite a lot of activity out in Morgan Forest and really good quality stations as well like Dance FM, Friends FM, uh, Eruption really yeah Rave FM really good quality stations and there's some fantastic recordings still on Mixcloud from them yeah kind of like Randall, DJ Hype playing, DJ Rap um, all broadcasting from here really yeah really high quality. plug this don't forget it's back on this Sunday Liberty in the palm trees 169171 4th Street Edmonton 10 till late 
Rave FM DJs to be confirmed, yeah? That's the Palm Tree Club, 169171, 4th Street, Edmonton. Get yourself down there. Rave FM, running team. Once again, a big shout out to Woodstock and Sniper. If you're out there, contact the studio. We'll get up to the studio ASAP. Did a lot of the people running the pirate radio stations and DJing on them also live in the borough? Yes, the people that we spoke to did, yeah. So we tried to focus as much as possible on people with the strongest connection to the borough. So like Roy Balfour, who set up Friends FM, he was born in Leighton and Friends FM was broadcast from an estate in Leighton. And Mike Stone as well, who set up Dance FM, was from Walthamstow. So both of them had a real familiarity with the area the estates and were already kind of networked into the kind of scene here so I think you couldn't have done anything like that on your own you needed to have a support group and network around you to be able to set up and broadcast so I think it felt like it was really important that people did have that network I don't think the same could be said for eruption I think from talking to Andy Clockwork they were very much a hackney station and kind of had to find their way out here to get better space and a better studio and I don't think they had such strong connections initially with the borough weirdly enough nearly every single one of these podcast episodes comes back to community yeah it's just so important to people to their mental health to their well-being to your sense of who you are is that kind of belonging and support network and interest i think it's communities yeah is everything really how did the people involved in sweet harmony respond to the publication and other outcomes and events that came out of the project the feedback has been absolutely amazing i felt quite nervous about doing it because although i'm interested and passionate about music i'm not a music expert so it felt very much like i was treading on a whole very specialist area and i didn't want to market myself as a specialist at all so i was very respectful of their knowledge and really respectful of their experience and I think that they felt that so the feedback's been really fantastic I think they've been delighted there's some people that are sort of busier than others like DJ Rap I don't hear from her that much but she's been very grateful and very supportive where she can be but positive time in their life some of the people we're interviewing are in their 60s and obviously you know as I'm reflecting they're also reflecting and a lot of their life hadn't previously been documented in the way that things are now so the actual transcripts of the oral histories I think people have really appreciated having and kind of putting their memories in some order for them at particularly a chaotic time looking back in their lives in a time that you know some people were maybe dabbling in ease or whatever so I think you know just having that kind of organization and documentation has been really good for people quite often some of those things you mean to do you mean to document but you never get around to it so a lot of the people I feel like it's it's started them on a journey of of trying to get their archives in order which feels like a nice nudge to have been part of that's brilliant have you got any favorite photos that you've collected My particular favourite is a guy called Scott Walker who worked for a company called Banorama. So Banorama was a banner painting company that used to do loads of parties around here and really massive kind of national events also. And he's standing in front of this just huge colourful banner and he's kind of dwarfed by these strange characters behind him and that's so colourful and so of the time. And there's another picture actually by that Lenny D. Ice sent 
of his home studio. Again, like the colours, it's all kind of really rich browns and wood and kind of brown carpet. And it's so evocative of the 80s and such an amazing insight into someone's living space and working space. Yeah, but we, we, on the whole, we didn't get as many photographs as I'd hoped. And a lot of the venues that we were talking to, a lot of the people that DJed in venues, venues wouldn't allow any photography at all. So that's been disappointing, um, but quite a challenge to get good quality photographs. And how is it for you? You're a photographer. How is it slightly switching roles and going from photography projects to a project that involves lots of other media and I guess which is a lot more about gathering and collecting. Quite early on actually when I started doing photography and focusing mainly on social documentary I felt like the photograph wasn't enough to capture somebody so I started doing oral history maybe in like 2006 it felt really important to get somebody's own voice and that actually as a photographer you have a power to portray somebody that felt a bit uncomfortable and that having somebody's own voice and their own stories just felt like a better balance to me and actually I think every project I've done I've collected bits of archive material because I've always been interested in like I say community people's histories I think particularly in East London, my, well, my, my experience is that people are very good raconteurs, you know, they tell great stories. There's a really strong oral history tradition. So yeah, that's always been part of my work. But this project was different in terms of photography because I didn't take my own photographs and that was mainly because of funding. We got funding from National Lottery Heritage Fund, but it wasn't enough to cover my costs to do photographs. And I kind of regret that because there's some people that we met that I probably won't have an opportunity to photograph again. And I, I really feel like I should have done portraits. Um, but sometimes decisions, you know, have to be made. A lot of the work that I end up doing for projects like this is voluntary. And, you know, sometimes you just have to be careful of the amount of time that you put into things and balance it with other commitments. Is the project finished or have you still got some more outcomes? No, it doesn't feel like it's finished. It doesn't feel like it's finished at all. <laughs> There's like, we've got a list of about 20, 25 more people to speak to. And especially as we did the publication, you know, more people have got in touch. There's certain key people that it feels like we need to speak to and it doesn't feel like it's complete. I wonder if it ever will. We're supposed to have an exhibition 
next year. So at the moment, I really need to get on and fill in funding applications to try and get the resources together to put on an exhibition. And as part of that, I'll include doing some more oral histories with people. I don't want anyone to feel like they've been excluded or this is in any way exclusive. You know, no matter how small your role was or is, it feels important to to leave it open to include people in some way. But again, kind of looking at resources, I do have to be careful with how much time goes into it. Um, so with Rendezvous Projects, we set up a community interest company and that was initiated by Lucy Harrison, who is one of the five people that are part of Rendezvous Projects. And that's been just fantastic for us because it means you're eligible for more funding pots. I think when you do projects like social history projects, I don't know any that are paid for commercially. The only projects I know of have been publicly funded. So setting up a CIC just means that you're able to apply for more funds. The other thing that's been really great about Rendezvous Projects is that we've all got different skills. We've got Ian H, who's a writer and journalist. Um, my background, as well as photography, is in digital and marketing. Lucy is an artist. I've worked in a lot of galleries. So we've kind of, like, the combination of skills is really helpful. So I think... If other people were wanting to do similar, definitely would try and get a group of you together that can work together and support each other. It's a lot of work, especially like applying for funding is absolutely torturous and very, very time consuming, as I'm sure you know. So, yeah, you know, even just having other people there that you can have a moan with or just read through applications is really helpful. I think that's the main thing. When we spoke on the phone last week, you said that you were sending the publication out internationally to Japan and places like that. Why do you think it's reached so many people and people that aren't even necessarily from London? I don't know. That's a good question. I, I mean, I guess it taps into a, a really strong community anyway of sort of collectors. I think the fact that it's limited edition and it's got voices in there that are pretty well-known people possibly taps into that kind of collector network. I don't know. I've been really surprised it felt like a bit of a risk doing a project about such a specific area and an area of the country that isn't that well known. And then to be sending publications like all over Europe, a lot to America, to Japan, as well as all over the country has been a real surprise. And like the feedback has been amazing from people posting on social media, emailing us just to say how much they've enjoyed it. So that's, it's just been lovely, really, really lovely. And I, I hope that what we're doing is really genuine and we're very genuine about what we do and I feel like hopefully people get that and it's sort of reached people in that kind of way that it feels very honest yeah I don't know it's, it's been a lovely surprise I think the design as well you know it's, it's nicely designed it's got a wraparound cover that folds out so it feels like a nice object in itself. Do you think that Sweet Harmony Project can teach us anything about today's culture and attitudes towards music and culture today? Well, my massive hope is that local councils and sort of local funding authorities just realise the importance of culture, the importance to young people's lives, the absolute positive effect that you can have with culture and with so little, you know, they get involved and they support more grassroots, local initiatives. I don't think young people get enough credit for the sort of ingenuity and the initiatives they start 
there's quite often a lot of negativity and a lot of fear around youth culture and that's a real shame because it's so valuable to people growing up it's so valuable to areas so yeah my big hope is a local authority revolution (laughs) fantastic yes (laughs) that's great thanks Catherine thank you can you tell us where to find out more about Rendezvous Projects and Sweet Harmony? Yeah, if you go to our website, which is rendezvousprojects.org.uk, and then if you have a look at the project page or on the homepage, there'll be a link for Sweet Harmony. And where can we find out more about you and your work, Catherine? So you could have a look at my website, which is Catherine Green, spelt with a K, catherinegreen.co.uk. Thanks for listening. A big thank you to Catherine Green and Rendezvous Projects for sharing their vision of sound. Thank you also to Francis Redman for the soundtrack and Ian Phillips for the additional audio support. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe or leave a review on iTunes. This will really help other people to find vision of sound and hear from the talented artists we talk to. Visit georginacook.net forward slash vision of sound or at the vision of sound on Instagram for images to accompany this and other episodes.